You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, in St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... You can enjoy extended commercial-free versions of this show by joining us at patreon.com forward slash monster talk, all one word, M-O-N-S-T-E-R-T-A-L-K. For as little as $2 a month, you can enjoy longer interviews, unbleeped language, and bonus episodes exclusive for patrons. And if $2 a month is not workable for you, but you still want to help out, be sure and leave us a positive review on your podcasting platform of choice. iTunes reviews in particular can help bring in new listeners and your positive reviews really make a difference. If you want to learn other ways to help out, visit monstertalk.org forward slash support, where you can find even more ways to help keep this show going. Thank you to all of you who are supporting us with your hard-earned money and valuable time. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or even exceed your expectations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. This week, we're going to be taking a look at the ghost case that chilled Karen and our guest as children. We'll be talking with podcaster and researcher Kean Gill, host of the Wide Atlantic Weird podcast, about a story that both Karen and he encountered 
in another one of those creepy and unforgettable Usborne Supernatural books. This time, it was from Usborne's Supernatural Guides series, and it was the book Haunted Houses that first appeared in 1979. The spooky tale of the Walsingham Ghosts featured a two-page spread with gruesome painted images to illustrate the horrors that comprise this spectral tale, and it seems to have everything in it. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you can hear a reading of the newspaper story that started all of this as part of our bonus material. But don't worry, I'm linking to the story as well, so you can read it for free if Patreon isn't something you can handle right now in your life. If this story haunted your memories too, stick around and maybe we can unsaddle you of a few old nightmares. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, Kean Gill. Uh, Kean, you're from the Wide Atlantic Weird podcast, a show that I've been listening to for quite a while now. Um, and we're glad to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks, folks. It is a real treat. Uh, I've been listening to Monster Talk for a long time. I think it's fair to say there's there's a lot of influence on what I do from what you folks do. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm host of the Wide Atlantic Weird, which I generally describe as these days I call it the Irish 14 show that's critical but not cynical. And that's that's the tone I, I, I sort of strive for. That seems fair. Seems accurate. Yeah. So, Kian, I know you best as the Walsingham Ghost on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yes. Yeah. So Which is for the why last few we months, brought you on the show today. <laughs> yeah, for the last few months, I've been going under that name on Twitter, the Walsingham Ghost. And it comes with a, a very striking image, a, a, the blue face of a, a kind of an old man ghost. And he's got blood on his face and he's doing this horrible kind of rictus grin. And in, I suppose it has a personal link to me because it was a story and an image that I have was, was scared of myself as a kid when I used to collect um, books of ghost stories. And in particular, um, the the Osborne Supernatural Guides, which I, I believe you folks are familiar with. I, I think you've spoken to some of the people um, behind that series, in fact. We have. We, we spoke with uh, Christopher Maynard a couple of years ago, and that was a lot of fun. I'm a big fan of that series as well. And as you mentioned, the story comes from or the, where I first heard about it uh, was from the Supernatural Guide Haunted Houses. So that uh, was came out in 1979. And uh, the picture that, you, that you're that you using uh, as your avatar on uh, Twitter filled me with dread and terror as well <laughs> until I discovered that it was faced on Lon Chaney from Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I couldn't. I was so oh, I was destroyed when I found that one out. Aww. Oh my goodness! It's so obvious once you see it, and you know, <laughs> yeah. something to, of a horror movie fan. I should have known. <laughs> uh, we didn't know as kids. Say, I've since discovered that, you know, in in the world of artists for these kind of books at this time, it was pretty common for artists to you know take inspiration or outright crib from you know posters, movies, whatever, whatever they had access to. And there's entire websites and and. Um, um, and podcasts and things, people talking about where these artists got their origins for the for the famous art, in particular in Britain. Anybody who collected what's called Top Trumps, which are these kind of kids card games. I don't, I'm not sure if you know them, where you would collect superheroes or monsters or dinosaurs. And there were famous um, horror movie packs, you know, with Dracula and the Wolfman mm -hmm. and all, the, all your classic monsters. But of course, they, they weren't allowed to use the copyrighted images. So there were all these kind of slightly knockoff images that the artists had cribbed from usually, you know, classic horror. Uh, horror movies so it's a whole world it's a whole industry unto itself i'm not familiar with those but uh, had i grown up there i think i would have been too absolutely oh i was just going to comment that i looked up the uh, top trumps cards and uh 
I could see what you're talking about. There's so many nostalgia plays in Fordiana and ghost stuff. Uh, but and, and we're, I don't want to say guilty of it, but I mean, a big inspiration for us, for Karen and myself, was the whole things that scared the crap out of us as kids. Cool. <laughs> So, Keen, we brought you on the show to talk about the Walsingham ghosts. And I guess my first question is, uh, outside of wanting to find out that story, what is an Irish guy doing, being interested in this story that's set in Georgia, US, as they say? <laughs> so the book you referenced, the the, the Osborne book, um, Haunted Houses, Ghosts and Spectres, is from 1979, but it was republished at some point in the 90s and was showing up in, in Britain and Ireland and was available to kids like myself who are interested in these things. And um, I suppose the fact that it was from the 70s, it was a time when publishers didn't mess around and they didn't hold your hand as a kid, if you know what I mean. They weren't afraid to present kids with material that was maybe a little bit stronger than we'd expect today. And so not only are the illustrations in the book extremely striking and a little bit gruesome and, and in some cases quite quite upsetting and traumatizing, um, but they, they hired actual folklorists and, and people who would have, you know, a, a real expertise in these subjects in order to write the copy. So the people behind this book were um, is Eric Maple and Lynn Myring. And Eric Eric Maple in particular is quite a well-known, was quite a well-known folklorist in, in England. He's from, he's from Essex and he's kind of associated with creating this idea that Essex was a particularly witchy county in England. You might have heard of Essex being described as the witch county and according to um, scholars like Robert Ronald Hutton who would say that you know a lot of this, while of course Essex did have witch hunting, I mean this is where the witchfinder general Matthew Hopkins was operating, by sheer numbers you know it wasn't any more of a witch county than you know other parts of England in particular Yorkshire or Dorset or the, the West Country but the mere fact that this guy was operating there and doing all of interviews there and was interested in this stuff, he created this almost mythos for that part of England, his part of England. And I suppose he elevated certain characters. Um, George P Pickengill was was a, a minor character, you know, like a, what the English would call a cunning man, you know, a guy who did small kind of local magic things to help people out. And so this folklorist, um, Eric Maple, kind of elevated him and said, oh, he was almost like the king of the witches in this part of Essex. And so he was interested in promoting this very slightly hyperbolic version of of, um, you know, a witch haunted corner of England in, in books like um, The Dark World of the, of the Witches in the 1960s. And so he, this is the guy who's writing this kid's book. And, you know, you can bet that this guy had a serious library of, of ghost books and paranormal books. And, you know, he's he's pulling stories from Victorian times. He's pulling stories from decades gone past. And out of this collection of stories, he pulls something called The Walsingham Ghosts, which, as far as I know, I never saw it anywhere else until many decades later. I saw it in another 70s book called the Hamelin, um, Hamelin ghost, ghost book, also from the 70s. And But it, as far as I know, it's not one of these very well-known stories. And I think the reason it resonated with me and stuck in my memory was the, the, the illustrations illustrating a, a particularly kind of gruesome sequence of events, which perhaps we might get into. Absolutely. And I think that's what attracted me to the story, too. So, yeah, I, I thought it was strange that uh, when I was discussing the story with Blake, he hadn't heard of it. And I thought, well, here it was uh, reputedly set in Georgia where he lives. And uh, so I thought that that was strange. And it doesn't seem like this story has been reprinted very much. No, and we might actually find out why Blake isn't familiar with this, because as we, we'll, we'll go at the, the Osborne version first that I knew, and we might try and trace this back. And I know, Blake, you've done a bit of research on this, too. And we'll see if we can figure out what the what the origin of this was and maybe why it's not known um, in the area where you are. So this is a story supposedly happening in 1891. 
um, at a farmhouse in Georgia. And um, according to this version of it, there's, there's very little geographical information given before that. But we're told that um, a, a farmer or a family man comes into possession of this house. And the illustration of it is absolutely wonderful. I hope you'll agree. It's um, like, a, you know, almost like a cartoon haunted house in the American style. Yeah, if, if, you, the... if you don't mind me interjecting, I, I have some bad news, guys. Uh, you know, we've just discussed that the ghost's face is Lon Chaney. The the be- the beautiful haunted house is the house from Psycho. But- <laughs> of course, <laughs> there's a lot of movie influence on this artwork. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh my nice. goodness, I'm I'm not even surprised. Apparently, of course, of course it is. So that should tell listeners everything they want to know about what it looks like. But to, <laughs> to me, it's very much in that American yes. Gothic tradition. You know, like an American haunted house in stereotype looks mm-hmm. different to what we expect over over here. So it's that kind of late Victorian Gothic, Charles Adams, um, Edward Gorey kind of kind of house. And the story goes that Beautiful. when the family move in, the first thing they happen that happens to them, and they should really know better than this if they've read any ghost stories themselves, they find some bones in the house and they throw them out which you should never do because Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're going to bring bad things down upon you. And of course, they're immediately confronted with, you know, mysterious happenings. There are groanings and moanings. There are bells ringing, um, which made me think of of Borley Rectory, the the much later and more famous haunted house. But apparently it's doorbells ringing, not servant bells. But yeah, the the memes are uh, (laughs) the memes of the haunted house are starting to build up. Um, And and there's hideous screams and wails and terrible laughter keeping the family awake at night. And then a series of, of terrifying happenings start occurring. And what's, what's wonderful about this is that the artist has um, chosen to depict all of them as being the doings of one particularly evil, horrible looking spirit, which is a, basically a naked man who is bright blue and glowing and has a really horrible face. And so he he's interacting with the pets first of the house. So he the dog dislikes him and barks at him, but the cat seems to like him and is stroked by invisible hands. So even though we can see him in the illustrations, the family cannot. That's the other thing that really weirded me out as a kid. And the dog um, is is barking at him. And at one point, the dog is thrown back across the room, and they find that it's dead with its neck broken. So this is a this is a seriously horrific ghost who's not mm-hmm. afraid to deal out deal out something really nasty. He's a cat person. Oh, the ghost. The ghost is a cat. Sorry. <laughs> I was oh. thinking you meant like he was part cat and part blue mm, ghost man. Mm. <laughs> oh, no. Like he's not a dog. Like the movie. <laughs> so, like Blake. Blake's a dog person. I'm a cat person. So, <laughs> so the next thing that happens is the, the daughter of the house is um, sitting in front of her mirror in her room and she feels um, and she sees, in fact, somebody's hand coming down from above her and landing on her shoulder. But when she looks in the mirror, she sees nothing. She screams and the family come running in and there's nothing there. And the next day, Mr. Walsingham, the father, is walking in the, in the yard and he sees the footprints of what seems to be a barefoot man appear in the soft soil beside him as he walks around, even though he can't see anybody there. And then things kind of come to a head, which is kind of a pun, when, um, as you'll see, when they have a dinner party. Uh, with some friends and it's ruined when there's a a terrible groaning coming from the room uh, above the the dining room and then blood bright bright red blood starts dripping down from the ceiling above and landing on the on the tablecloth and spreading out onto the dinner table and of course everyone runs upstairs to see what's going on but there's nothing up there 
and they rip up they go so far as to rip up the carpet and not only is the are the boards underneath the carpet untouched um, but there's even a layer a thin layer of dust on them to show that they've not been disturbed in some time and this apparently is the last draw for the family and they leave the house at which point it is left empty for a period of time and then as often happens in ghost stories um a young man takes up a wager from his friends to go and spend the night in the haunted house. Again, classic horror movie setup here. His name is Horace Gunn. And so he spends a, a creepy early evening trying to keep himself occupied in one of the haunted rooms by himself. He's trying to light a fire, but he feels that, you know, it's it's as if someone with icy cold breath is, is breathing on the fire and, and preventing him from getting it alight. And um, eventually when he does fall asleep, he starts hearing, he's he's woken by sounds as if an invisible person is running up and down the stairs outside the room. And suddenly he wakes up and sees this horrific head floating in front of him. And of course, it is um, it is that terrifying blue Lon Chaney face. And I was so terrified of this as a kid that I would try and read the book with the pages held together. So in case I accidentally saw this face with its weird watery oversized eyes and the blood dripping down it and the, the creepy grin and the weird upturned Lon Chaney nose. And the last thing that happens to Horace Gunn is he runs out into the corridor and then icy cold hands grip him around the neck uh, until he passes out and his friends find him um, in the house in the morning. And he, of course, he uh, announces that he will never go back in. And, and that's where the story ends, as I knew it as a kid. And Cleon, uh, I want to add too that I, I I was terrified by the, the the blood dripping. I think that that could be another nod to another trope. We're talking about Psycho and uh, Phantom of the Opera. But I wonder if that's where, um, if Amityville were possibly inspired by that particular story with the blood dripping from the walls and the ceiling. I, I, I do always think when I read about this that wouldn't this have made an amazing horror film in that kind of sweet spot in the 70s when a lot of those classic haunted house movies were being made? You know, with nice with practical effects and just the just the look of a of a good seventies horror film, or even a bad one. <laughs> yeah, it, it it does have everything. I mean, it's got the the initial haunting, all the sort of poltergeist effects. Mm -hmm. It's got full blown specters being seen. It's got uh, people challenging the ghost. It's got people fleeing, uh, the blood dripping from the ceiling. Uh, it's not the only blood dripping house in Georgia, though. In the eighties, there was a famous uh, house that allegedly dripped blood um we can talk about that another time i guess but they uh they called it the some people call it the blood house at fountain drive and uh joe nickel investigated that one and uh they had some interesting findings but yeah yes yeah i remember this one right, but you know this this whole this whole um what do you want to call it um collection of events and the fact that you both found it in a book that you read when you were younger, it, it fits into our classic Monster Talk theme that we used to always, you know, hit over and over again, uh, which we called uh, things that scared the crap out of us when we were kids. Um, and that's mm -hmm. al there's always been a driver here. So this is really interesting to kind of deconstruct this. And, and uh, But can you tell us a little bit more about Horace Gunn and who he is and what this part of the story is about? Uh, I don't I don't know much about it beyond what's in the the sources. So, I mean, we could get into where this came from prior to the 70s and, and what. Yeah, the, yeah, the we can do that. Uh, yeah. OK, that's fine. I, well, maybe we should talk about that beyond the children's book. Maybe this is a better question. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Beyond the children's book, uh, what other sources were you able to dig up on this? So I have researched this a couple of times and I have talked about it on my show. And I, at one point, I was convinced that the earliest um, book version of it was from the work of W.T. Steed or Stead. I'm not sure how you guys say this. But I think I it's Stead. Stead. I think Stead, yeah. It probably I, is. Um, if I say Steed, <laughs> it's, just a, it's just habit. So W.T. Steed had a book in 1897, which is called Real Ghost Stories. And um, for a little while, I was convinced that actually I, I thought it came from this book and then I thought that it hadn't. The reason being there were multiple publications of this and there was one uh, and kind of an edited version put out by his own daughter, Estelle St um, Stead, in about 1921. And some of the material is taken out of it. And I think that's where I got the impression that this story wasn't actually from this book. But it, but it is. It is, in fact, from Real Ghost Stories by William T. Stead. And that's from 1897. And so... We get a little bit more detail from this, right? So we get the, he, he says that the following story reaches me from across the Atlantic. It appeared in the San Francisco Examiner, November 29th, 1891. If it is not true, it is at least well invented. <laughs> the <laughs> item about the cat being in itself sufficient to justify its reproduction here. Thought that was interesting. He found the cat, the fact that the ghost was, you know, vicious to the dog, but nice to the cat uh, struck him as as being of interest. And so Steed, if, if we can talk about him for a moment, uh, being a, a rather important figure in, in Victorian England and, and the Victorian world at large, was absolutely the kind of person who would have been chronicling stories like this because he was a huge spiritualist. He was mixed up in lots of other kind of Victorian era ghost stories. He's, he's connected to the story in a very convoluted way. He's connected to the story of the, the supposed mummy, cursed mummy case of Amun-Ra in the British Museum. And of course, he, he was one of the most famous people then to go down with Titanic in April uh, of 1912. And um, the, the cursed mummy story even outlives him then where the fact that he supposedly was telling the ghost story of the of the mummy case um, during the night, you know, over this 11 course meal with all of his rich friends 
um, you know, before the ship struck the iceberg. And then that after the fact, that story gets mixed up with this idea that, well, maybe the cursed mummy case was actually on the Titanic and that's why it went down. So he's an extraordinary figure in the world of, you know, Victorian weirdness. Um, and so it fit perfectly that he would have been the, one of the early sources for this particular story. Neat. <laughs> and uh, I'd just like to comment on the, um, the San Francisco Examiner article of 1891. You can find that online and it's called From the Spirit Land, The Ghostly Visitations to a Georgia Farmhouse. So it's really interesting to read the story in here and it's quite a lengthy story. And they go into the Horace Gunn part of the story as well. But I think what's interesting is that there's very little information here. There are lots of details in the story, which is often for us a hallmark of urban legends. But there's no information in terms of names of the people who were involved in this, no specific dates, no place info. So I think all of that is strange. Blake, would you have anything to add on the on the location here? We do have the name of a place, and uh, they they give the name Oakville on the Savannah River. And in, in another source, I found it's mentioned as being a few miles um, outside of the city, which I presume they mean Savannah, Georgia. I'm not sure if you had yeah, any thoughts the, on that. The the original article uh, it, it mentioned it being uh, seven or eight miles east of Statesboro on the on the river. Uh, and the river, the Savannah River, which is still a good bit upriver from uh, the city of Savannah. So Statesboro would have been the closest city. Um, it, yeah, I mean, I, if if you don't mind me spoiling, I, 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 because I'm from Georgia, uh, when I heard we were going to be doing this topic, uh, which I didn't know much about, I went back and read the original newspaper article, uh, as we often do, looking for... Is there anything here I can check out? And my original thought was, oh, this will be cool if they have something about it at the Historical Society. You know, I'll be able to go, you know, Statesboro's, it's a long drive, but it's, you know, but three hours. But I mean, to look at a ghost case, I'll go, you know. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, maybe there's no point in going because there appears to be no Oakville near Statesboro. There, there, there's no such community. And I, I contacted the Historical Society. They didn't have any records of it. They, they suggested I might try a couple other county groups. But I also went into the, you know, the newspaper archives, uh, state records. I, I thought maybe the family name would show up. I mean, when, when you have a farm in, in rural Georgia, I, I mean, even uh, if you're not enormously famous you still have tax records and property records and that sort of thing and i just couldn't find anything about yeah. this so it does kind of feel like the the story originates with this article and it does show up then and um, it goes on to show up in other newspapers shortly afterwards we've got one from the brooklyn daily eagle um dated december 5th 1891 and the headline goes a ghost that resents cremation of his former bones Horace Gunn goes gunning for specters in Georgia Homestead. Nice. He says that he will not do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The puns are timeless. (laughs) (laughs) To return to the San Francisco Examiner for a moment, the fact that the article is under the headline from the spirit land kind of implies that it's a regular recurring column. And it it does sound to me like the sort of thing that if newspapers had an area where they printed, let's say, spiritualist-themed or, or even theosophical-themed things, they would be inclined to give it a name such as that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the And, of course, it sounds a little bit like Summerland, which is the uh, the place that um, I think spiritualists think that the soul goes after you pass on. Mm. Um, and, but it really, I mean, 
my goodness, to have all of these characteristics, you know, rolled up into a single story like this, it does read like the sort of uh, universal ghost story. Like, let's just cram everything into one story, you know. Uh, and I, I and I like it. I mean, it's really compelling and spooky. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be backed up by anything uh, other than this this one newspaper story. It, but now the Brooklyn story or is that right? Was it Brooklyn where it was reprinted in New York? Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Yeah. And so, how far away in time do you know what the dates were on the Brooklyn reprint? Or, or do, yeah. Would, so we've got 29th November 1891 for the San Francisco Examiner, and then. December fifth, eighteen ninety one, for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. So, um, isn't it peculiar? It's not, this seems like a October twenty ninth kind of story, doesn't it? Not a November one. <laughs> November twenty ninth. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And yes, I, I, I take, I take an interest in in newspaper stories from this time. You know how people who are interested in Bigfoot or interested in in spiritualism or what have you will will tend to crib these newspaper stories a little bit out of context sometimes because there were times when. You know, it was a fashionable, a fashionable thing, or at least a fad thing, to print kind of daft stuff in newspaper. I mean, it still happens. It's not. <laughs> you don't have to look too far away from. But I, we, I think we have this habit of looking back at the past and saying, "Oh well, you know, if it was in the newspaper, it was serious." And I, I sometimes wonder if there's a context missing there. If people were able to look at these things and kind of know that it's a little bit silly, you know, like nobody looks at the Weekly World News and expects all of it to be real. But in in a thousand years, archaeologists might look back and miss that context. And 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 yet at the same time, spiritualism was a huge thing in the 1890s and people did take it seriously. And, uh, you know, new, newspapers put stuff in there with with their tongue a little bit in cheek, but also knowing that there would be t- people who did take it seriously. I, I, I might say another source that I had for this, um, especially when I briefly thought that uh, Steed's, uh, Stead's book wasn't actually the, the original source, was a book um, by a fellow named Hereward Carrington, who was another interesting sort of ghost investigator from this time. And he had a book in 1915 with an almost similar title, which again is is probably why I got confused. And that's called uh, True Ghost Stories. And he repeats the story. It's clear that now in retrospect that he's cribbing it from from um, the earlier book because he actually mentioned Stead um, and he quotes him a few times. So that's clearly where he's getting it from. But just as a kind of a little link there, um, as an investigator, he, he he investigated something called the Great Amherst Mystery in, in Canada, in, in Nova Scotia. And now he was there in about 1907, I think, under the auspices of um, the either the SBR or the American. SBR. I think it's the ASPR. Or, uh, I think it's yeah, the ASPR, yeah, yeah. the American um, Psychical Research Organization. And so it's it's a few decades on from from that particular poltergeist case. But you know he's talking to people who were witnesses there at the time, and this is a case where um, an 18 year old girl named Esther Cox is being supposedly haunted by you know what we might now see as like in a fairly typical poltergeist activity and um, although fairly fairly dramatic really but by, by the scale of things she's being attacked by um you know pointy objects and knives and things and there are multiple spirits being contacted by people involved in the case and it, it is also kind of a sprawling and dramatic case which was a very very big deal in that part of canada and and it's, people make the link often that that the Foisters, who were the family kind of who lived in Borley Rectory in England, uh, you know, that much better known today ghost story, uh, haunted house story, uh, that they lived in roughly that part of Canada. I think they were in New Brunswick. So they would probably have been aware of the story. 
And one of the details associated with the story is that there was spirit writing on the wall close to the bed of the girl who was who, who was the focus of the of the activity. And again, having a, a, a teenage or be the focus of your poltergeist activity is, is, a, is a classic trope now as we'd recognize it. But the spirit writing on the wall, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill, was the famous phrase, quite quite intense, um, is reminiscent of what later showed up in the 1920s and 30s at Borley Rectory when the Foisters were there um, and the famous mm. uh, Marianne, please help get spirit writing. And again, with 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 a young woman being the focus, it, it doesn't prove anything. It's just an interesting connection to make. But I'm always fascinated how... Mm. Port Borley Rectory, when we were talking about these haunted house cases and, and, and the Walsinghams being a, a classic and a very cinematic, an unexpectedly cinematic one, mm-hmm. how interesting that Borley Rectory always focuses as this kind of axis around which all these other stories flow and, and how it almost, you know, it, it's it become this kind of archetypal case where it, it sucks in all of the previous tropes that have been building from Victorian times and refines them. And now it's the story by which we we kind of judge them and expect them and, and by which other ones are modeled. And a lot of people who wrote horror novels or made horror movies based on the haunted house story, including, you know, the likes of um, Hill House and Shirley Jackson and everything explicitly mention Borley Rectory as one of their main sources, if not earlier examples like, like Balakan House. Um, but Borley Rectory also shows up in the 1979 Osborne book and has itself, that, that that dramatically illustrated version of the Borley Rectory story has since gone on to inspire filmmakers and folklorists and podcasters mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who loved that book as kids in the 70s and again in the 90s. So it's all connected. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 there is a strong connected tissue there, uh, both in the features and in the investigators. Hereward Carrington uh who has one of the coolest names in this field. Uh, he uh, also investigated the uh, Watertown ghost case. Uh, so he was one of the first investigators on that, which is near and dear to the show. Um, and then, um, you know... Lord Dufferin. Yep, Lord Dufferin. Yes. And I was going to say, in the, in, who's also got that Canadian connection or Canada connection. And then, you know, you had Nendor Fodor doing uh, Jeff the Talking Mongoose, which also showed up in the Osborne books. And you've got Harry Price, who does the Borley Rectory thing, and probably was also hoaxing some of the phenomena as well as popularizing it. So it's really like this fascinating tapestry of people who are investigating. Some of them are making things up. They're, you know, it, it's it's an interesting hodgepodge. So like if your big question is, is it real or not? You know, that sometimes... Maybe not even the most important question, right? <laughs> the, the only important question is, did you get involved in the spat between Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini or not? And of course, do I even have to say that Herbert Carrington absolutely did? So <laughs> there you go. He did. To think of it. <laughs> yeah, right. That was part of the Scientific American investigation into the validity of psychics. Uh, yeah, the fascinating story. We probably should do... A good two-parter on that because there's a lot to cover there. And, of course, we've still never done a pure Borley episode. I know Karen loves that story. So, anyway, let me get Karen back in here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, When I was doing some preparation for this episode and uh, trying to to find some information, as you mentioned, Karen, there are just so few sources and each source seems to be cribbed from another source. And uh, so there's, there's very little out there. But stories about Walsingham... Uh, ghosts from Walsingham in Norfolk, England, kept coming up for me. Mm. Now, Blake and I have talked about this a lot of the 
transplanted or transported uh, from one place to another. And and I just wonder if somehow it got transported to Georgia. Why Georgia? I don't know. But it's as good a theory as any. Sure. And I suppose there's, there's just always the chance that a, a wily journalist casting around, you know, for a, a fun story that they're kind of making up is likely to choose local names in order to give it a bit of uh, verisimilitude. Exactly. Yeah, I think it, the, you, you, you're hitting on the whole thing of like we have uh, there's this sort of narrative DNA um, that kind of travels around with some of these stories. And uh, sometimes a story can pick up material from all kinds of different cases and mix it up. You basically I mean, Amityville, it seems to be widely recognized as having been a hoax. But it's also a beautiful remix of a lot of classic mm-hmm. ghost narratives. And uh, I think we have uh, uh, several people to thank for that. But Jay Anson being a horror writer probably helped, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, I, it, 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 so interesting. I, I, anyway, I, this, the audio has been a little challenging here. But, Kian, we really appreciate you coming to talk with us today about this case. Because it, it is, even though it's underreported and maybe there's not a lot to it from a source perspective... It it's still, man. I I would highly encourage it's got everything. Our, I, yeah, our if our listeners, I, we'll include uh, the the original newspaper story. You should check it out. I mean, it's it's quite a treat. You know, maybe what I could do is as a bonus uh, for our patrons is read the newspaper article. <laughs> I don't want to try to fill it because it's it's long, so I don't want to uh, tie it up into this <laughs> single episode. But I, yeah, I'll throw that in there for them. I think that might be nice. Um, yeah. Yeah, that would be useful. Yeah. Anyway, but Kian, since you've heard the show before, you probably know what we're about to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do. Kian Gill, what is your favorite monster? Oh, I'm going to go old school. I'm just going to say Biggie. I'm going to say Bigfoot because I, out of all the things I wish were real, that's my favorite one. Yeah. It's it's a classic, yeah. but classic. timeless. I'm, I'm not going to try and be clever here. <laughs> That's the one I wish was real. I wouldn't be anywhere near it if it was real, but... <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah, yeah. Well, regardless, I, I, I highly recommend people check out your show uh, for a lot of reasons. It, it goes into some really cool deep dives into a lot of different topics. And um, it really, um, you've managed to keep the Percy Fawcett running for far longer than anyone else on the internet, as near as I can tell. So. <laughs> uh, I, I just can't get away from the Victorian and Edwardian explorers. It just seeps into everything I'm, I talk about, even when it's not supposed to be there. So It's fascinating. <laughs> I, I've learned a lot, so I appreciate it. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, this has been yes, fun. Thanks, thank folks. you for joining us. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with Kean Gill, host of the delightful Wide Atlantic Weird podcast, discussing the strange case of the Walsingham ghosts. Links to Kean's show, the source newspapers, and the Usborne book that brought terror to Kean and Karen are all in the show notes. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Food with Mark Bittman, Big Picture Science, and Fork in the Road. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. 
If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And thanks for adding us to the many voices already in your head. a monster house presentation a big inspiration for us for karen and myself was the whole um the the things that scared the crap out of us as kids i'm getting about 50 dating uh, suggestions now suddenly from skype uh it's like i'm being spammed by a date bot okay uh i need to turn off those notifications and then i'll be ready to get back to this hold on just a moment Yeah, it'll be fine. This was good quality stuff. Thanks a lot. I need to figure out how to... I I got to go date this other lady who's sending me stuff. Yeah. <laughs> mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.